just go with the moment and the moment was so huge even thought then this may never happen again there are few artists in South African contemporary music who have made such an indelible mark in our country's cultural history book. In the dark days of the early 80s, Evoid's vibrant, wildly infectious jive rock fusion swept the country from coast to coast, conquering charts, the media and concert halls, creating a unique fan base of thousands of colourful fadgets who jettisoned white suburban values and embraced the band's vision of a united South Africa free of discrimination. Along the way, Evoy managed to write some of the most enduring classic pop songs that still sound as fresh on radio as they did back then. This is the story of Avoid, and I'm thrilled to welcome my friends and fellow Brackmanites, Lucian and Eric Windridge, on this episode of From the Hip with me, Benji Moody. Welcome. Hello, Benji. Hi, Benj. <laughs> so good to have you guys. What a pleasure to be here. You know, it's 40 years to the year that your self-titled yes. album was released, so this podcast is spot on time-wise. Starting from the beginning, you were born in the Netherlands, and when did your family immigrate to South Africa, and why to Brackpan of all places? So we moved in about 1962. I was about four, Eric was about three, yeah. possibly. Yeah, two. <laughs> I was born in 60, so I was two. Yeah, all right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 62, 63, and yeah. we emigrated, all seven of us, seven children, my mom and dad, nine of us, and we ended up in an immigration center which is where they put people who have just arrived in the country to check, I suppose, to see whether they <laughs> where they fit in or not. <laughs> I've got no idea why. And the immigration centre was in Springs, and then my dad bought a place in Brackpan as soon as he had a job and stuff. Brackpan's like the sort of bastard stepchild of Benoni and, and, and Springs. What do you remember about growing up in Brackpan? I used to have loads of fights. <laughs> Kids in the park. <laughs> used to kick. Yeah, we did. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Used to ride my bike a lot. <laughs> and then the one time you fell over and I rode over you. Yeah, of course. <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> That's what big brothers do, don't they, Ben? <laughs> exactly. And, well, we met Ozzy, who was our neighbour, so that's how the earliest sort of band started in Brackband. But what do I remember about Brackband? I remember there were no clubs. There was one club that opened up. Yeah, but you've got to go back when you were little, you know. Oh, oh that yeah. far back. I mean, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> but talking about meeting Ozzy, when, when, when did the music bug bite for both of you? When, when did you start feeling that this was something that you wanted to pursue? Our first band was in the garage with tennis rackets and boxes. So Lou had a tennis racket and I had a box and we were beating out a rhythm. And that's kind of where it started. It was, it was just about feeling like you could do this thing, that you, even though you didn't have an instrument. And then Lou got his first guitar. I think it was a Christmas present or maybe birthday, Lou? But, birthday. Birthday, yeah. So he was the birthday first present. to get a guitar. And we were like, wow, a guitar, <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, it was a big deal. <laughs> it was. It was It was a, a big thing. And then I, I'd always wanted to do music. There was absolutely no um, doubt in my mind. But poor Eric, because he then had to go and matriculate, and I left at Standard 8, and I thought, I'm, I'm going to work, and I need to buy gear. <laughs> I need, if, if I want to get anywhere, I need gear. I need guitars. I need amps. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, And then only later, Eric came back in again. <laughs> 
And they are joint, wasn't they? You needed money for it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we can go down that road, guys. <laughs> yeah, clearly. Yeah. <laughs> from, from a formative point of view musically, when you got into your teens and, Lou, you were starting to play and Eric, you had expressed interest mm. in it, what were you listening to? I kind of know in a way what Lou was listening to because mm. I, I met you pretty early in your, in your sort of mid to late teens. What were you listening to? I listened to a lot of stuff that you introduced to me to, Benj. Mm. You know, I mean, you, you you were doing MC5, and you were, you were like, to me, a radical. <laughs> you know, I was a bit of a softie. I still went for the kind of soft prog rock that right. I, became, I got into. Do yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah. All the Wishbone Ash and the Uriah Heaps and the Bad Company and all of that stuff. But you you always stretched the boat out. You pushed it out. And I was like, whoa, I'm not too sure if I want to be that hard. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I did go through I, I, a sort I, I, of Detroit sound. You were like a barometer, which was good. And you, Eric, what, what, what do you remember listening to growing up? Wow. Well, I mean, it's, it's always the thing when you've got older brothers and sisters, they always introduce you to stuff you hadn't come across. So it was always a case of absorbing what was in the household. And then I suppose as you got a little older, there were things like, I always liked instrumental music as well, so jazz was was very something I really enjoyed. Chick career, you know, later on. But then there was also pop stuff, you know, real cheesy pop. Bee Gees, mm. good songwriting. I always loved a good song, a good melody, you know? Mm. There was always mm. something that that I really enjoyed. Folk artists like Cat Stevens, Leonard Cohen. So the whole gambit. I mean there was Grand Funk Grand Funk Railroad, was it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, Grand Funk, yeah. yeah. Uriah Heap, yeah. That yeah. Was great. <laughs> Doobie Brothers. Doobie Brothers, yeah. Yeah. There was an amazing landscape of music available to us when we were Mm. younger. When you look back at the classic bands, classic artists that we were all listening to and internalizing, and that obviously came into for all of us, you know, took us into music full time. Um, Lou, I think you schooled in Boxburg, eh? Yes. And it was there that you started your band Zenith. With um, Danny yes, DeVette, was it? with Danny. But, you know, I'm kind of, we did Zenith, but I'm then a little confused because I remember walking home from my girlfriend's place one night and a car stopped and I, get, I was hitchhiking mm-hmm. and a car stopped and Aidan and Terry were in the car. Okay. And so, and they picked me up and, they, and, I, and we started chatting about, oh, uh, do, do you guys do music as well? And I went, yeah, well, why don't you come around? We can make a band. So that must have been just after Zenith because um, Zenith was like a school thing that we did, right. m- me and Danny. Uh, were you involved in Zenith, Eric? I can't remember. Yeah, we used to do a, a uh, Black Sabbath tune, do you remember? So I used to come on and do a sort of a guest vocal spot. Ah, so even then, yes, <laughs> yeah, yeah. because I remember, I remember you always had the really magical, one angelic voice. So yeah. you know, I, I would have used you. I would have gone, yes, I'm going to yeah, use him. Absolutely. <laughs> so I did the Black Sabbath. I did the Ozzy, Ozzy Osbourne. Yeah. But Eric, you also and, did and you, like rock operas at school, didn't you? You kind of yeah scored. Yeah, yeah, I was so, really into so, that. Yeah. Yes, very much. Had so. you form, formed your own band at that point, or, or, or were you just kind of grooving along? Yes, it was called Ardent Haze. <laughs> Ardent, Ardent Haze. Haze. Yeah, really. Go Top figure. marks for, uh, for, for the <laughs> name there, dude. <laughs> 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 
Yeah. Just going back before you met Terry Andalus and Aidan Carter, because I want to talk about particularly Aidan, because we share history with him as well. Danny talks in his book about Zenith being quite a naughty band. In a, what, taking pills and stuff kind no, of thing. No, 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 just just that, that kind of like you would, you would go and do shows and crank up the volume and um, there would be Hell's Angels there and you would break into these huge... These huge, massive riffs. We did. We were. We had an attitude. I must admit. I'm not too sure if there was more Danny or, or whatever. Maybe it's <laughs> probably but, <yeah>. Danny. Probably. <laughs> probably. Danny. <laughs> yeah, and I just kind of went along with it. Uh, to be honest, um, uh, I just wanted to play and get the exposure. I didn't care where, what gigs we did, but it was amazing that we got gigs so young. Mm. Do you know what I mean? We were really young, fifteen. You know, that was yeah, about, what, 76, around about then? Yeah, yeah. Because so, in 77, you, you hooked up with Terry Andalas and Aidan Carter. And I think Ozzy Tehran, right, was the, guitar, the other guitar And player. Ozzy right? was always around, definitely. And then that's how we formed that band. And that became Void. That became Void, yeah. yeah. Uh, where were you at that point, Eric? So, Lou, was, was Ernie part of that band? The singer? No, no. Do you remember Are you Ernie? talking about Ernie Parker? He came yeah. much later. From Cape Town, I, I think so? Yeah. Yeah? Yeah, no, I he, remember him. He only joined after we came back from Zimbabwe, from Rhodesia. Oh, no, it wasn't. No, 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 you've got no. it wrong. Ernie's, Ernie's Aidan Carter sort of days, and Terry. Wow. He was the vocalist. and I think he might have been a friend of Marianne's. So Benji would have known him as well, I think. Mm, I, I, yeah, I know, because right. I played he, in the band he, with him as well. God, he was that early... Okay. Lovely voice. Really yeah. good voice. Yeah. Big afro. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So Void gets formed. And I remember uh, Void very well because I used to go along mm. to the, the Park Hotel in Brackband to watch you guys and oh, you gosh. and Terry and that mad, wow. crazy Australian drummer, um, Aidan <clears throat> Carter, who had a penchant for setting his drums alight or destroying his drums. Seriously. There's a couple of gigs yeah. that stick out in my mind. Then, of course, Terry, Terry went to the army because it was the days when you got called up. And I came in depth for a while uh, on bass with the band. And, and we had, I think, Glenn Yo was the, the late Glenn Yo was the manager. Oh, Gosh, yeah. really? God. Wow. Wow. I remember distinctly two gigs. Uh, I remember the Pope John Hall. Where Aiden, you remember Aiden used to have a trick where he would take the side tom and pour methylated spirits on it, and then he would set it alight and he would run oh, around it. on stage with the side tom. So I remember that very well. Was that the gig when we did Time Pink Floyd? Yes, with the with with the alarm clocks. When when the alarm <laughs> clocks didn't go off. When then. the alarm <laughs> clocks didn't go off. Yeah. And we didn't know what to do. <laughs> <laughs> and we couldn't start the song. <laughs> and then the other one I remember is, we, believe it or not, Glenn Yo booked us a gig at Jan Smuts Airport. Uh, oh, and we wow. uh, all went out there and all these people were dressed to the nines. What I can loosely say is East Rand gear. And of course, we, we kicked off with, you know, Radar Love at ear splitting wow. volume. And they pulled a plug <laughs> on us. And then they, nearly, and then they chased us out of... The area. We had to put all our gear in the car and flee. Glenio had a bucket. Actually, I have a vague memory of that. And we had to flee, and they chased us through Kempton Park. Gosh. Till we got on the way to Brackburn. Anyway, yeah, so so Eric, you joined in 78, right? Yeah, because I finished school in 77. 
and so that that nucleus now was you and Lou, uh, Terry. Uh, yeah. um, I think Aiden was still playing with you at that point. Were you doing covers? It was Danny then, actually. When I joined the yes. band, so Danny Terry was a drummer. Danny. Yeah. yeah. I only remember Aiden with you and Terry and Benj. Hellenic Hall is what I remember in Brackpan. Mm. But I do remember going to Danny's house in Benoni. Yeah, because his mum used to have this piano, lovely piano in the, the living room. So what were you playing at that point, Eric? Were you, were you playing keyboards at that point? No, I was just singing. You had already been playing piano for a while. Yeah, yeah. Keep... Yeah, yeah. But I, I think the, the early days, if you think back, the first professional gig was Zimbabwe. Mm. So just before that, we did the Battle, battle of the Bands. Oh, yes. So right. I, I was playing keyboards then. But the very origin of the band, I was just singing, maybe doing some percussion or whatever. Well, let's talk about the Zim thing because a revised lineup of the band went to Zim. There was the two of you with Danny and and Terry, and I think was um, Aggie in the band at that point. No, the strange thing was that we we were a band with Ozzy, right, as well, and then we got offered was it Harold whoever gave us offered us the first contract, and Ozzy pulled out, and I went, Oz, what do you mean? He said, Lou, I can't. I can't go up. I can't leave my job. I can't just leave this all now. I said, oh, we've got to go. You know what I mean? And he said, no, I can't. At that point, maybe, Eric, you started taking on more more keyboards and guitar. You Probably. Know, you see, because yeah, I, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's how, how – because you were the singer, but then you had to do more. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and you ended up <laughs> – Doing everything, bass and singing and yeah. keyboards. <laughs> Bloody hell. And, and I just sat back, <laughs> sat back there having my joint in the corner. <laughs> but I mean, uh, going to Zim no. for a band, it just was like no. almost the equivalent yeah. of, of going to Hamburg like the Beatles did. I mean, you, yes, you went there yes. to yeah. hone your craft and to, you mm. know, do three, four sets a night. I mean, I've heard some of the escapades of the band up in Zimbabwe but I believe it was a great learning experience and it made you tighter yeah I, I wouldn't have done it any other way Benj I mean there's nothing like gigging constantly honing your craft even if you're doing a cover you think okay well I'm going to be using this and, and writing some stuff that is a bit like this it has the same kind of energy that the people feed off so you're learning you're learning what people like you're learning mm -hmm. what doesn't work yeah you learn, you know, you learn all kinds of stuff. I even remember standing up there thinking, why are people like looking at me? And I felt a bit self-conscious. And then it occurred to me once when I was getting, I thought, you know what? They're not actually looking at me. They, I'm just something that, that I represent to them. You know, they were in their own heads. And then that made me relax. And I thought, okay, that's cool. I'll, I'll be this person for them then. Or I'll be that person, you know. <laughs> I started role-playing. This was really fun. Yeah, yeah. It was good training ground. Very, you know, there were, there were even odd occasions where they would have guest singers so who, who would be into some really cheesy stuff like Cliff Richard songs or whatever. <laughs> and we would have to be the backing band. But even that was an education because, you know, you had to be seriously disciplined. You had to get the shit together because the singer put a lot of effort into being his Cliff Richard number. <laughs> So, yeah, yeah, that no, was good learning. And then they, they asked us to cover My Sharona. Yeah, yeah, I, I, yes. I remember that. that. That actually went to number one. But before we get to that, what kind of material yeah. were you doing in Zim? Were you doing hit parade stuff or were you doing kind of rock stuff? 
We did a bit of everything, to be honest. We had two or three of our own songs in that were gems, like the one 17-minute How Calm the Storm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, I mean, you know... 17 you, minutes. I, I don't okay. know how... 17 minutes How Calm the Storm. And people would sit and watch the whole thing because it was like... I suppose it was like watching a Yes concert for a bit, you mm. know what I mean? Or uh, Yeah, and yeah. It just it, it worked. I don't know why it worked, but it worked. I think it worked because we believed in it, and we thought, well, this is what we do, and people go, okay, this is what they do. So, yeah. But did did, did you perform in that song, Eric, as well? Did you come yeah, up front? Yeah. No. Uh, not that one. That was African Cross. That was African Cross. That was later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah I think we developed the performancing a lot later. Yeah, I think I think the early days was just about getting the music and the songs and that sort of musical language working, and then we worked on the craft of performing to a to an audience how to work out, and that's I mean that's really how Evoid develops, you know, because then mm. we then we got the, both those things together. So you did My Sharona, which was originally done by the Knack, but that went to your version yeah. went to number one in Zim, which mm. was quite an experience, I think, for you. You were starting to write original stuff, as you said. At what point did you then return to South Africa, and why? Because you were doing well in Zim. We were doing really well. We initially went for a three month stint, which ended up nine months. I'm not too sure if we got offered something in South Africa or if we just left. I think, because I think. when we left, did we go straight to East to No, East no, do you remember the gig? No, no, do you remember the gig we had in, in Johannesburg where our equipment got burnt, that club? That's it. That, that's, that's the club it. we went to after, right. after we Zimbabwe. Got, so it was, it was kind of Santon Four Ways kind of area, if I remember. Yeah. It wasn't the Hyde Park Hotel, yeah. was it? Yes, it was the Hyde Park Hotel. The Hyde Park mm. Hotel, yeah. I remember reading yeah. about it. In it the doesn't sound before. right now, but... Eric, oh, yes, it, it was, it you're was. right. Yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah. Yeah, it was a Hyde Park Hotel. But the club and had anyway. a different name on the bottom. And you had to try and save your gear and, and, and yeah, you yeah, lost yeah. a lot of stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So you're back in South Africa. You're obviously gigging around, doing your combination of cover versions and your original yeah, stuff. Original. Yeah. Yeah. So here comes the intriguing part. This is something I've mm -hmm. wanted to ask you when I was thinking about it today. There's this epic sea change, this chrysalis, this... Uh, transformation, reinvention, call it what you like, from being a kind of a prog rock band doing, you know, uh, uh, you know, sensible covers and for audiences, but with no clearly defined image, you know, and, and direction. And you transform into a completely different being called a void. Mm. And I want to try and understand why and how that happened. Was it a, where you sat down and said, we need to change and this is over a process, this is what we're going to do, this is what we're going to present. Because that's when I became aware of you again. I knew you were in Zimbabwe. Yeah, yeah. It really was a process of osmosis. We, we were always so open to new stuff happening to us, and we reflected in what we wrote and how we approached music. And the things that were happening at the time were Juluka, the police, Peter Gabriel, and a real sort of appraisal of roots music of what you had locally that you might be able to explore. And Lou being adventurous in the guitar anyway, which was always his thing, just hearing some of the, the Makanga stuff and the way South Africans were playing guitar, and then you suddenly thought, this is something that nobody else does, and that's your way in.
Ben, I definitely started out as a rock guitarist, mm. and I ended up this in this sort of jangly, African-y yeah. type guitarist. You're asking the transition. Um, it's there were many many elements involved, but one of the elements was Aggie, who said we should do Soweto New Wave, and I was going, "What are you talking about, Aggie?" And I still had my long hair. I was still looked like Ken Hensley from Mariah Heap. And Aggie's going, no, 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 that's, that's old. You need to be doing Soweto New Wave. And I went like, well, what is that? He said, oh, it doesn't matter. Just, you know. <laughs> and um, then the next stage was Danny saying, I, I'm, I'm sick of this. I'm, I'm out of here now, Do you know, in East London. And, and then Eric and I thought, well, what, what are we going to do now? We had already, by then, Eric, we'd already started creating these grooves, yeah, different yeah jangly grooves we just wanted to experiment more i was yeah. quite heavily into talking heads as well to be yeah, honest yeah, so that's I, right. I, I mean he was the antithesis of the prog rock image you know here were here were these clean cut suit alternative arty people you know yeah yeah <laughs> yeah so i wanted to bring all of that in and bob marley of course so, yeah yeah <laughs> that's true so we actually we all we did is we explored new wave in a in an african or southern african context yeah, because, I mean, there's obviously Mbakanga influences, but there's also kind of like high-life guitar from yeah. kind of Kenya, uh, Uganda kind of feel. And then that's mixed with, as you just rightly said now, with that kind of synth sound that Gabriel came up with and Bowie and everything. And, and this, this meshing of two styles created this completely different and unique sound. The whole synth pop thing hadn't happened I, you know, I don't think we would have gone down that road. It was kind of the synth pop thing, but an end to the guitars, a particular kind of guitar thing. Yes. Mm. And, and so I thought, well, let's do something else. It was certainly unique and the, the meshing of the, the different styles into this. It was different to you, obviously different to what Jaluka was doing because it had this pop sensibility which I think yeah. the band has always had this pop sensibility about yeah, it. Absolutely. Even though you are a rock band. I mean, people ask me and say, well, are they a pop band? I go, no, they're not. They're a, they're a rock band um, that has pop sensibility. So, so all these songs start pouring out. Shadows, uh, yeah. Taxi Man. And so there's this, this, this complete wave of songs starting to come out. And then Ethnotronics. And whilst we added Fadgets. And, <laughs> and then the fashion thing. I mean... What, who was the creative team that came up with all of this? I mean, besides yourselves. I mean, who came up with... I know your brother, Carl, was involved in it. I see a man in the mirror But his face is made up again Well, what I'm up against is A fad and fashion
just explored. You know, like we did with music, we were, we were developing performance and we wanted the music and the performance and what we, what we displayed to be of the same, same genesis, you know, the same root. And I suppose that's where the Jaluka thing came in. We, much like we explored local music and local expression, we explored local, how do, how do things look in Southern Africa? And so we explored that. Absolutely. We, we thought we have to be local. We, there's no point being an international band. We're a South African band. So we have to take on that South African image, whatever, whatever that was. Jaluka were one part of it, but they were far too, um, like sort of, they were still a rock version of that image. And, and I, I didn't want that. I wanted something different again, something a bit more, a bit newer, a bit more exciting. Yeah, more edgy as well. Yeah, more edgy. But um, how do we get into the image? It's hard. I don't know how it evolved. We just... Well, you think about the 80s, Lou, in the early 80s. I mean, you had Boy George, you had Culture Club, you know. Sure, All sure, of that stuff honest, was yeah. really happening along with the, with, the, with the electronics and the keyboard sound and, and the synthy stuff. Kay started making the costumes and, and, and stuff, which was great, you know. I want to talk to you about the creative process because I'm fascinated by the canon of songs that you produced in that short period of time which is the two albums plus the 12-inch and some other stuff that came out. I mean, it all seemed to come out at one point. How, how does or how did the writing process unfold between the two of you? Just jamming. <laughs> Taxi Man and Shadows are both very, very different in, in the way they came out and the way they evolved. Taxi Man was a very deliberate attempt of mine to create a pop song. So I... I wanted interlocking grooves to work. And I came up with this riff and it just worked beautifully. And then we said, Eric, I said to Eric, we need to sing over this. And this, so we started singing. And then funnily enough, we didn't have lyrics. So I just asked Carl, have you got some lyrics? And I had a quick look through his book. And I said, oh, yeah, that, that's the catchy chorus. We'll use that. So we used his lyrics. And then Eric and I crafted the whole song from there.
So that was a very deliberate attempt to write a pop song. But Shadows couldn't have been further from the truth. Yeah. Because we had already, Bench, decided on the track listing of our first album. And Shadows wasn't on there. And the, the studio had already been booked. And then in the time, the month from the studio being booked, we wrote Shadows while, whilst we were rehearsing in the Chelsea, Chelsea Hotel. Yeah. And I'll tell you about that in a minute. But we, we, we had this song and I still came to you and I said, Benj, we, we, we have this other song. And you went, well, but Lou, we've, we've got the whole track listing. We've got the studio lined up. And I said, well, Bench, we've got this new song. <laughs> and you went, at first you went, no, we can't. <laughs> I don't know if you remember that. <laughs> no, at, at first you said, no, no, Lou, we've got to go with it. I said, no, Bench, you, we, okay, we'll take one of them off. Yeah. <laughs> so, we, so we took one of them off to, to get shadows on. Yeah. Well, that was a blessing, wasn't it, at the end of the day? <laughs> I just want to say a, bit, a little bit about the writing of Shadows. Go, Eric. So Shadows, while we were jamming it, so I, you know, I had the keyboard riff and then you had the guitar and it, and it was just a riff and it used to be called Indaba. That was its working title. And then I took it home and then wanted to write some lyrics. And I had a book, which I've probably still got here, by um, Credo Mutsawa, uh, African storyteller, yeah. Yeah, in Daba, my children, Vusamazulu Kredemutwa. And I bought for 50, 50 cents in, in a library. And I thought, oh, this is fun, fantastic. And I took it home and I just absorbed it. And it just kind of got to my brain. And that's where all the lyrics came from. It was a sensibility of that storytelling. Um, and once I had those lines, and I remember going into the rehearsal next time, we we started singing as we do, you know. These are the lyrics, and then we just bounced it off each other. How we would, how the song would develop, you know. We didn't have a chorus. Oh, we, we didn't just, have shadows. That's right. It's a title. No. Yeah. And then, no, we didn't have a, a chorus. Yet. We, Eric Eric started. I had the strangest dream. He went into. He he was able to do the verses and tell the story beautifully. Mm. But then I remember we didn't have a chorus, and I what popped into my head, Benj, was um, Simple Minds. They have that thing somewhere, sometime in some that track, and it had the down, down, down shadows, and I thought, oh, I just maybe that's what we need. We just sing shadows, <laughs> <laughs> and that's how it came about. Yeah, oh, that's how it came about. <laughs> as random as that.
signed a void which was you know a big thing for me because we we knew each other and I was blown away with what you were doing and I remember thinking and, and you know the last couple of days I've been I've been playing the first album relentlessly in my car it's the depth <laughs> of the songwriting is just amazing I mean Urban Warrior which I really mm. listen to now for the first time in, in, in a long time. It's the most incredible song. I mean, it's, I think it's, <laughs> it's about... a great track. It's a great track. It's, it's kind of like, yeah. it's Floydish in a way, you know, yes, with, with a very, slide echoey guitar. Very. But Definitely. the message of the song, I think, is so important about migrant workers yeah. leaving yeah, absolutely. their homes and coming, coming to the cities. And it really yeah, moved yeah. me, and uh, you know, it, it, it's mm. amazing. But I remember being super impressed by the level of professionalism and management structure around the Avoid unit. To give a heads up to Carl, when you were talking about how how Avoid came about, one of the other parts and partners in that was Carl, our older brother. At the time when we were putting the trying to rebrand and trying to refigure, rebuild something new that we could develop and work from. Once the band is split up, there was the covers band, which was Danny and Terry. It was just Lou and I, really. And we had to find a drummer. And we had another gig to go to. We, we, we split up in Port Elizabeth and we had East London booked. And then Carl came mm-hmm. into the picture. We went up to Joburg um, and we had these sessions where we would just spark off ideas. And that's where the E-Void came from as well, those, tour, that, those discussions. And we just kind of honed this whole sound and the whole image and the whole way it would work. And then we found another drummer, which happened to be Wayne. Well, actually, George before that, George Morris. George Morris, And Wayne. Because we had found out we could actually do a three-piece, which made it quite interesting, was hard work. It wasn't the easy Mm. way to do it, but it made Mm. us stand out. We weren't just another rock band. And I suppose that's where the police thing comes in. Um, Mm. So... Yeah, we made it work in a different way and we combined those elements. It was a crucial coming together of a lot of things where we ended up being a three-piece, uh, writing those songs, having those gigs. I mean, East London was great because the people were so open to anything we did. You know, we could be Pink Floyd, we could be uh, Bloody Osabisa, we could be, you know, we could be anything that we wanted. <laughs> It was lovely. So eclectic. Yeah, yeah, it was very eclectic. But I mean, the band was tight when you went into the studio. If my memory serves me well, I think it only took a couple of days to cut that album. Benji, you're absolutely right. It was. I think we did it all in about a week or two weeks at the most. All of them, all of it was done. Yeah. Mm. And I do remember um, having this conversation with Richard Mitchell, the engineer. And he was saying, um, 
well, maybe don't you want to try this or that, you know, sound? And I was going, Richard, all I want to do is we've played the songs live. I just mm. want to reproduce them as we've done them live. I haven't, we, we didn't have that luxury. I didn't think we had that luxury. Plus, I didn't really want, to ch- want them to change. I wanted no. them to be reproduced like we did live. Well, that's the key that's to the longevity of, the, of, yeah. of that album is, is I suppose the simplicity so, yeah. and the space within there and the fact that they sound very live. It still sounds very live. I must tell you that cover nearly got me fired. Um, the, the hand tinting <laughs> really? of the cover cost 2,000 rand, which in those days was a shitload of money. And I remember Derek Hannon saying to me, if this doesn't work, and it's not the first or the last time he did this, uh, if this doesn't work, you're toast. Uh, but but the cover is so striking. Yeah, Because you're talking about the black and white image and touched up in colour. Yeah. Yeah. All the beads yes. were hand-coloured. All the beads. Yeah. Each hand, one by one wow, re- were hand-coloured. And the- Who did that? Who did it's it? A, I, I'll look it no, up. I've I never can remember. All right, I, know, okay. I know Fiona McPherson took the photo. Yes, absolutely. We put the album out, and there was a debate yeah. within We about the first single. I wanted to go with Taxi Man because it was the most obvious uh-huh. choice. And my girls, the three of them, uh-huh. Kim, Terry, and Edith, came to me as, 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 as a delegation and said, it has to be Shadows. Wow. And they sat really? and argued <laughs> with me. I'll never, ever forget it. We were in, in, wow. in the um, Parktown house. And, I, and, and, you know, as an A&R guy, you kind of go, this is my idea, this is my crew, I will do that my way. But mm-hmm. one of the few times I went, okay. And they were right, because then what happens, it explodes. Avoid mania starts. You were, you were doing these gigs, and even after all the struggles you had been through and all the work you had put into making Avoid, it must have been so satisfying to see your work being so recognized. By people. Wow. <laughs> when, you, when you're on that treadmill, you know, you're doing interviews, you're doing so much, um, it's hard to appreciate it at the time. Mm. Um, I remember we had one break and I went down to Margate uh, and this live band started playing this song and my ex-wife Kay said, they're playing Shadows. <laughs> And I went, what? I, d- I didn't recognize it. My, my head refused to hear, hear them play a song that, <laughs> our song, you know. <laughs> but, and that, that became like, oh, right. Oh, I get it. And when the first time I heard it on radio, again, I didn't recognize it because I'm not used to hearing our song on the radio. Right, right. <laughs> it's so funny. I was in the business when Rabbit broke. Yeah, and I yeah. remember the mm. teen mania that happened. Yeah. But the air void mania was on another level altogether because not only did they embrace the music, they embraced the fashion. They embraced the way that you looked and they dressed and that's their expression. I remember going to the Chelsea uh, just about six weeks after Shadows came out and there was lines down all the way down Abel Road. All the way around. And I walked in and I said, what's going on over here? And they said, they're here for the band. And I remember that little, that tiny little cupboard that we called a dressing room down at the bottom of the yeah. stairs there. But I remember that distinctly and vividly, the heaving masses of kids um, in, in the Chelsea and at gigs. Constantly. Just, everyone embracing it. Yeah, yeah. Like you said, Lou, it's hard to look back because and, and say, well, 
you know, what was it like? But I mean, what sticks out for you about that whole wow. period? The intensity of those gigs. There was an intensity. Mm. You know, it's strange when you walk on stage and you think, well, I didn't have time to analyze what we'd done, but what we had created was creating this mania. <laughs> and it was lovely. It was such a jaw. I loved it so much. You know what I mean? <laughs> I really did. And then, of course, we, we had the, pro the problem with Wayne Harker uh, and the South African Defence Force. Yes. Uh, yes. Which uh, the stories are quite legendary about him dressing up and sneaking into gigs and stuff. So Danny then joins you for a little while to do the tour. Yes. And then there's the closing of the Chelsea. I mean, the Ch Chelsea really is the central the mm. central venue for Air Void. I mean, that's where it all broke out of. Without um, a doubt. And yeah. I remember, I don't, I don't know if you remember the, the, the party, the street party outside the Chelsea on the last night was Pretty just... Uh, unbelievable. The following year, you had, you know, the Sorry Awards, Best Pop Album, uh, Best Production. You had, it was just on the cusp of the Constitution. And you had, I lo what I loved about Avoid was you had cheeky artwork. I mean, I remember <laughs> the new Constitution for Dance Poster, which, yeah. <laughs> which we papered the country on the eve of the con constitutional vote. And there were so many great things happening. Um, do you know it's the only South African pop album to ever hit number one on Springbok Radio? No oh. other South African artist ever got to the number one album chart. What? Singles, yes, that. but not the album chart. And that comes from wow. the horse's mouth, Tina Sesterhazen, you know. Wow, I never I, knew that. I never knew that, Ben. <laughs> I, I wow. found out a couple of weeks ago we were, when I was saying, oh, I'm going to be interviewing the Avoid guys. And he told me, oh, yeah, I remember when we went to number one, you know, I made it happen, you know, Tina, you know, with his <laughs> yeah. kind of like vibe, you know. But <laughs> um, then you went on this big national tour. Uh, I mean, fans yes, still talk yes. about it on social media. Does that tour a bit of a blur for you? I always remember w w the last song the DJ played was Blue Monday and that was our cue to get on that was our cue to come on and everybody you know just sets up the vibe and then we would come on say it was always like that I loved that and of course the people with shadows and all that resonant jumping yeah. they went right through the floorboards yeah, yeah. yeah. gosh by the end of 84 you really had accomplished everything that you could possibly do you know, you had a record that had gone gold, was heading platinum. You had these, this tour. You had everything happening in the media. You must have got to the point where I said, well, what, what was next? And what was next after reaching the pinnacle? And Eric, I think you were being hassled by the defense force to, to go to the yeah, army. Yeah. Um, yeah. You decided to leave South Africa for London. Mm. So starting all over, that must have been a very hard experience, was it? Whoa. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'd say was, I have to take the blame for a lot for a lot of that because I did hassle Carl and Eric probably about um, even before Evoid was big. I said, Carl, I want to go to 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 England. I want to have a go there and try it out. And he said, Okay, well let's just see. Maybe this year it'll work. And then it, it worked. And then once the band had done it i still said i still want to go to england and then we were just about to go and concert in the park came up and i said we no car we can't we have to go you know and he went but lou they want us to play this gig and again we nearly we, we nearly didn't make it i mean we, we had said no we can't do it 
And and he said, Lou, this at, at the momentum. There are so many bands going to be playing, and I went, and we went. Okay, well, we're going to have to do it now. <laughs> well, I mean, your performance there was absolutely massive. I've watched yeah. the video time and time again. What do you remember about that day? I mean, what hundred thousand people just, just coming up midday and seeing like hundred thousand people in the audience? Like, usually at a gig, you only see people, you know, in the few rows in front of you because it's nighttime. But at daytime, it's, it's unbelievable. I had a flat in um, Chelsea, and I walked around Jealous Park about sort of eleven, and I remember calling Lou and saying, "Oh my God." This is going to be huge because even at 11 in the morning, there were so many people in, in the ground. And I thought, um, it was just, I mean, it was, it was unbelievable. It's a, it's a complete one-off in terms of how you feel. We just knew, and it's one of those things that, because even my youngest says to me, how did you know what to do and what to say? And you just go with the moment. And the moment was so huge. Even thought then, this may never happen again. And it's probably true. It hasn't actually happened the way it had then. And so it became so special. And I'm glad we seized the moment and did it. You were on the top of your game, though, on that show. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Who was playing drums? Kevin. Kevin. Kevin Gibson. Yeah. Gibson. Kevin yeah. Gibson, the young jazz, yeah, yeah. jazz cat. Yeah, young jazz cat. Was he playing? Yeah. Yeah, he cut it. Wow. <laughs> i tell you why I asked that why. question, because when I watched Shadows and Junk Jive... They're shot, cutaway shots of a drummer. And I went, that's not Wayne. It's not no. Danny. And it's no, not George it's not. Voris. So I thought Absolutely. I had to ask who it was. <laughs> <laughs> Kevin Gibson. <laughs> so after that, you go back to the UK. You start the whole process again, um, knocking on doors, playing gigs. Um, what sort of reaction were you getting in the UK from both the public and the industry? We arrived in Feb. 1985 and it's, it was snowing really strongly and we had all of our evoid colorful gear in the snow and i distinctly remember japanese tourists t taking pictures of us stopping us going can we take a picture and i was going well what do you want to do with the pictures ah thinking this is the new thing that's coming out in england now <laughs> so and then eric and i go to meet warner brothers we had an interview and there's this young goth, German goth, proper goth gear. And he looks at us and he goes, you know, you guys are like canaries, like a canary amongst sparrows. You know, the, the sparrows will kill the canary. <laughs> Aren't all South Africans murderers? Yeah. And that's, that's how the whole, whole thing went. Yeah, yeah. Didn't go, didn't go down too well. <laughs> <laughs> it's crazy, but... We gigged at the Mean Fiddler. We did a, a, a little tour in Germany. Yeah, that was that was great, actually. Uh, with 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 Ilna on bass. Yeah, Ilna Hoffmeyer. Ilna Hoffmeyer. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Four piece. And, yeah. Yeah, that was great. So we did, we we had a go at it, but yeah, you know, we we were still we were small fry in a big pond. Although there are undertones of, of of social and political commentary on on some of the songs. That, that you've done, you became, I think, more pol politically active in, in the UK in terms yeah, of, yeah. of playing for progressive political organisations. What was the reaction from, from the South African contingent in London towards you? You know, you'd come from Joburg, you'd been this incredibly successful pop band, and now you're here, you were in London. 
I mean, did you get support from them? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the thing is, people we just did. people just wanted to hear ta- Shadows and Taxi Man, you know. <laughs> so we, we we did we did expat gigs for a long time. Remember? Yeah, absolutely. You know, the Springbok Bar. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. The thing is, anyone who travels then gets a view of what it's like from the outside. So that anyone who saw us in in the UK felt like we did. Um, wanted to change, didn't want South Africa to be the way it was portrayed, didn't want it to be unequal, wanted to, wanted a place that we all loved to be shared by everyone. And so there wasn't a lot of aggro. I mean, when we did the German tour, I remember the guy saying, oh, uh, what are you jumping on a bandwagon? And I said to him, well, actually, you know, you probably wouldn't be interviewing us if you, if you weren't jumping on, a, on a, this bandwagon of African music because it's not like you support African music anyway, you know? So you're also... You're accusing us of doing something, but you as a media person are jumping on something that you see now as current. But actually, you now African musicians have been doing this for years and centuries, and you know. So we appreciate what we've done, what we've come from. And we just wanted to explore that. And we just wanted to be in the right place going forward, that we were not seen as being, that we were progressive in, in what we had come from. And, mm. and that was all it was about. You know, anti-apartheid was, was an obvious thing. There was, there was just a no-brainer. I mean, I remember when we went back to 1987 and did the tour and we sang in Kozisikaleli um, and then people were like, whoa, what are you doing? And that would have been quite early days for people to hear it from, uh, being sung from by, you know. But I kind of, I, I sang it because I wanted people just to be aware of it, that it was, that it was part of the future. You know, this is where South Africa is going. And, and you know, you don't have to preach, you can do it through music. And that's what we did, really. We always, we always mm. stuck with the music. You know, even the lyrics, they might have suggested politics, but they weren't political. They were just awareness. You know, music was our thing, really. I remember at the time I was mystified that they didn't get it, especially the UK, because yeah. I thought what you had was a lot more muscular than yeah. the tepid synth pop that was coming out in the UK, plus your stage performance. Here's a question. Do you think the fact that you were South African counted against you? Yeah. Against us, definitely. Definitely. Yeah, definitely. We were white South Africans. Yeah. They, they weren't interested. Yeah. Why, why should they be? Yeah. You know, they, I, I remember a year later seeing the Bundu Boys, was mm, maybe even some... around the same time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and they were amazing. So, so you, you were competing with like, incredible bands. Why should they be interested in these little white yeah, yeah. guys from South Africa? Yeah. Yeah. Musically, they wouldn't even give us a chance, so that's it. Simple as. It's just the way that you
very sad though. Before the release of the second album, you released a 12-inch, Quella Walk, I'm a Fadja, Tell Him and God Him. You know, there seemed to be a plethora of songs pouring out of you at that particular point. But you yeah. started work on Here Comes the Rot with Greg Cutler, which was a much more experimental album, quite varied compared to the debut. As I remember, you came back in the December to do a six-week tour here. Yeah. And we put out Dancer Instinct. Yeah. And then it. there was that tour, was there a beef between Evoid and Petit Cheval? Yes, I think there was. Uh, about the info song, Selby had done the info song. Oh, um, yes, that's right. I remember there was a beef because <laughs> we were all together in the weir boardroom trying to sort sort this out how did that all, that tour pan out i can't remember did they go, did you did you tour together and we we kept entirely to our own i mean danny's documented that in his book a bit and him and jonathan taking the piss out of us on the sidelines <laughs> each time every single song <laughs> How did that pan out? And on tour, I don't remember much of the actual gigs, Benj. Yes. You know, I'm trying to think because what gigs were there? Were they? I, I thought uh, they were kind of like shopping malls. That's what. Yeah, was. they were kind of uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, open air sort of uh, vibe. So then you went back. I mean, here comes the rot. I listened to it again on Monday. It is very different to the, but there's some great songs on there. I mean, Alter Pop, it's great. Dance the Instinct, I love. They're yeah. really, they're really inventive, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah. That was the thing about Avoid. There was always image, there was always thought yes. put into the visual aspect of the music. Back to the UK, and then a huge gap Life of about happens. 22 years. <laughs> Life happens. <laughs> you know? Well, oh, before June, we get June. there, I've got to ask yeah. you. Yeah, go Jeremiah on. and Josephine, which I think mm. is one of the most beautiful songs ever written. Thank you. It's lovely. Race of Tan and, and, and one of my favorites, Jiving to the Weekend Beat. Where, mm. when were they recorded? 
So when we came over to the UK, we first stayed at my sister's place in Battersea, her and her husband, Frank. And then we were, and it was because we were all together, we kind of needed to find our own place. So we we still stayed together and we found a house on the other side of London, which is North London. She was in Battersea, South London. Um, because we wanted a garage, and it's, strange enough in South London, you don't find many houses with garages. It's just one of those things. Um, most people park on the, on the road. But North London, we found a house in South Harrow, which is where I'm still at, in. Um, and we found a, a house to rent with a garage. And we turned the garage into a studio so that Leo and I could carry on writing. But the also thing, we also ran the little garage studio as a, a studio that people could hire. And then we wrote, all those three songs were written in South Harrow, in that house, and recorded in that studio. Well, initial initial versions. Yeah, that's right. That's right. In, King, in Kingsfield, in Harrow, yeah. I had a little bedroom studio. We recorded Jeremiah there. And was driving as well, actually. Yeah, probably driving. The one that's, yeah. So actually, they were all, they were, they were all demos, really. You know, we, we always were, they were, yeah, we, we really wanted to re-record them, but we never got the money. <laughs> but I mean, Jiving is such a joyous song. Yeah, it is. I should have been re-recorded. When I was driving and listening to it, I mean, my foot goes down on the accelerator and I'm filled with a sense of joy.
great that I still feel like that about songs. Yeah. Jeremiah and Josephine is such a poignant song. Yes. About homelessness. Yes. Then there's that big gap, as I said, 22 years from from Here Comes the Rot uh, to Graffiti Lounge, which also has a great song in Under Blue Skies, which I watched the mm. video on as well. Why the long delay? Were, were you guys dormant? Was it, was it over, you know, were you, what were you doing? First of all, we did gig for a while at all the Springbok bars, and mm-hmm. then that came to an end. Then we kind of went on, Eric got this job, and, and we just kind of went separate ways, really, for a while. But then I remember um, saying to Eric that I really wanted to do under blue skies because I had this guitar riff that I'd written for it and I could I, could, I never I was never able to put it down because we had different versions and I was saying Eric and then a, a friend of mine had lent us some money and Eric put in his money as well and we started recording we thought okay let's just get some of these recordings down so I really was driven by um, Under Blue Skies. <laughs> I wanted right. to get that down. And then the other songs came out. Lou, you were also interested in studying because you did astrology and anthropology. Yeah, yeah. So there was, a, you know, there was just time out. We had kids. You know, I've got five kids between my, my wife and I. I've got a, a daughter from my first marriage. So, yeah, kids, you know, when kids happen, time goes whizzing, whizzing by. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> You've come back intermittently. Yeah. And performed it to critical acclaim as recently as May, which I thought the Copper Bar gig was absolutely massive. I was so My glad wife had you never were there, seen Bench. you. Oh, wow. Uh, um, oh, wow. No. Yeah. And she was cool. like, she kept raving about it for days. Oh, wow. <laughs> Sweet. <laughs> I love this, this woman coming up on stage with a massive poster that she'd saved yeah. all these years. <laughs> Is there another tour in you on the cards or is it just going to be one-offs going forward? Potentially, yeah. It would be nice to do a tour. I mean, I'd love to do a, I'd love to do a countrywide tour that would get all those small places that never, ever see us and would love to. You know, often we get the social media contacts and people say, oh, can't you come down to East London or PE or Neisner or in any of those places? It would be really nice to do a countrywide tour, but I just don't know if, if it's realistic anymore because of finance. Um, in terms of logistics. It sounds like the gigs are also hard to come by in terms of venues. I think they are still venues. I mean, in PE, there's still the Feather Market Hall. It's still there. And you always had a strong base in PE and East London. So I was talking to Bill Berters, you know, Bill, who was was part of the whole thing in May, about a a, a tour. I I keep saying to him, you've got to do a nationwide tour. They will sell out. Because I remember your last two when you came out, you did the, the theatres, and I mean, you had sellouts. I mean, yeah, yeah. so I think it's still there. I've heard rumours that you may come out with OMD. I, we haven't heard anything yet. 40 years is a lifetime in this industry that we're in. <laughs> but despite the time and space, the Evoid name and the songs still live. I mean, yeah. they, they still resonate with people, not only people from them, but new people. And I saw that at the Copper Bar. There was a, a, a fairly big contingent of young people that weren't around when the band came out originally, which is amazing when you, when you look back as 20-somethings on a crest of yes. a tsunami of success and popularity. Absolutely. What lesson do you think you learned from all of this? Would you do it all again? What you said earlier, Benj, is that how did we move from a prog rock band void to something as 
ethnotronics or ethnopop, you know. So, so what would I say? I would say always have the courage to, to shift and change. If it feels like you've been dragging your feet a bit with something, which I did for many years, I should have changed a lot quicker. I think you should just move. You shouldn't wait. You should seize the moment, always. The music won at the end of the day, didn't it? Yeah, because we never really, and we've, we've often said this even when we were younger, we just went with our heart, you know. What, what we felt, we did. So, you know, we wrote Fadget in Germiston, for instance, in a, in a strange little, <laughs> a strange little <laughs> rehearsal room. I mean, where were our heads, right? You know, writing, I know. F- I am a Fadget in a, in a rehearsal room. And we laughed. <laughs> we laughed our heads off. <laughs> yeah. So just, yeah, just be brave, you know, go for it. Why not? Bloody hell, you're only young once. <laughs> so was it the song first or the, the fashion first? Oh, the song. Yes. yes. Yeah, yeah, the it song. Was the song. The song yeah, came the, first. It was the song. The fashion came yes. from the song. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the music always comes first. Yeah. Amen to that. Eric, Lucian, thank you so, so much Aww. for being part of this conversation. It's been an absolute mind blast. I mean, it takes me back. I'm sure it does to you as well. Yeah. I hope to see you again when you come out. And I'll keep hassling them to get a, tour, a proper tour together. Thanks for your time. Brilliant. Thank you. All songs used and published by kind permission of Airvoid and Tan Music, Multiculti Music and My Music. Airvoid songs available on all streaming platforms. You've been listening to another production from Solid Gold Podcasts. Jeremiah and Josephine live on the outskirts of Gold City. The skirt is so wide they can only cling to its side. At the hint of first light they will rise Shovel some coal into forgotten fires Prodded from sleep by the clatter of tins Creeping the jaws of survival again Jeremiah and Josephine Conjugate under cold corrugate This is no place for a family No place for humanity The first of May and the last of their will Mass stay away will surely maim and cripple The system will crumble under weight of the humble In a show of strength unforeseen Heavy foot, light foot, shabby boot, gum boot, the ritual mamba moving into the cycle of work. Heavy foot, light foot, troubleshoot, sharpshoot, the ritual mamba calling into the dances of war. He say, why, Josie, why? How much of a man if I don't make a stand? So rise up, Josie, rise up. Even tomorrow is uncertain today. Jeremiah left Josephine Crossed the border anonymously Turning around in his mind All freedom has its price Came to a wooden post Standing prouder than most Crosses for numbers driven down this road God only knows that the truth so far Can only be no covenant with God Now will you stand by me Will you fight with
Josephine 